Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Dr. Ali Bakir. Ali is a research assistant professor at the Ibn Khaldun Center for Humanities and Social Sciences at Qatar University in Doha, and an analyst who specializes in geopolitical and security trends in the Middle East, with a focus on, amongst other matters, the foreign policies of GCC countries and Iran. Just the person to talk to about the JCPOA. Ah, yes, the JCPOA. Remember that? Ali, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Bill. Always a pleasure to be with you. Now, just to remind our listeners, the original deal was signed in Vienna on the 14th of July, 2015, between Iran and the P5 plus one. That's the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, China, the UK, France, Russia, the US plus Germany, together with the EU. Donald Trump withdrew the U.S. in May 2018, and Joe Biden vowed to bring America back in. And talks in Vienna have been going on for more than a year to achieve that end. But, Ali, if we go back a couple of months, we see headlines that talk about a JCPOA deal being very close. Yet here we are, coming to the end of April, and things have gone quiet. So what is your assessment of how close we really are, and is there a possibility the deal is slipping away? Well, that that's uh, right. We I think that we are uh, very close and uh, far at the same time. Uh, very close because uh, this agreement on certain issues is pre- pretty much uh, minimal right now at this uh, moment, and uh, um, both sides are actually somehow ready to reactivate the. Uh, GCPOA. However, I think that it is far also because of the certain complications that came recently. One of these complications, for example, is that the Iranians think that uh, Biden administration can give more concessions, uh, so they want to pressure the the administration to give uh, these concessions. They mainly want to remove all the sanctions, including those that are not related to the nuclear deal. They, they think that the administration is weak, and given that it already gave them uh, concessions, they think that there is a space for more. So they are trying to pressure it to get more uh, benefits. Uh, but I think that by the administration is pushing back by saying, okay, if you want all the sanctions to be removed, including those uh, that are not related to the nuclear deal, then we have to negotiate also issues that are not related to the nuclear deal directly, including your missile programs and uh, uh, your uh, malicious regional activities. So uh, this is where the uh, two sides are stuck currently, uh, and they are pushing to, you know, to, to, to try to wrap up the deal. However, the Iranians are not in a rush, given that... Uh, which is the second uh, reason, by the way, they are a little bit more relaxed compared to the period of uh, Trump because uh, during Trump period, there were a lot of pressure on them. Now, this is not the case and they think that they can survive with the current situation. So they are trying their best also with the administration. Now, the third uh, reason is that it's related, in my opinion, to the Russian stance because after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, there have been some talks that Iran can uh, compensate to a certain extent uh, Russia's oil and gas to the West. And uh, given that the deal was uh, so close, uh, the Russians 
wanted to secure their interest in, in, in that deal by saying, look, uh, uh, if you want the deal to be out, we should get also guarantees that uh, sanctions will not, will not hinder our uh, trade and our uh, relations, uh, economic and security relations with Iran. So, And according to the Russian side, they lately received written guarantees from the American side. I'm not sure how accurate is this, but this is the the uh, according to the statement of uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. So uh, this is right now, this is the case. Uh, but at the end of the day, sooner or later, I think that if Biden administration is set to continue, they will reach a deal. The Iranians are looking at the Biden administration. They see it as somewhat weak, but we've got midterms coming up and there's a possibility that Biden could lose both uh, houses, in which case he'd be in an even weaker position. And what would the Iranians feel about that? Yeah, of course, they, they uh, take this into consideration. And uh, so there is a possibility that the Iranians are waiting to see how strong or weak Biden administration will be after those uh, elections. And if it turns out that uh, Biden administration will be weak, then the Iranians uh, will definitely assess that it's better to wait the next administration to reach a deal because they want uh, concrete guarantees. And uh, given that the uh, Biden administration will not be able to deliver uh, at the time, then the uh, agreement will be postponed. So this is also a scenario or an option where the Iranians are monitoring uh, the internal U.S. Uh, situation. And of course, the, the next administration could be a return of Donald Trump uh, or an acolyte. So, you know, it's a it's a gamble. It, it's a gamble. But if again, if Trump is back and they, they uh, already reactivated the, uh, the nuclear deal before his coming, then there's also a possibility that he will uh, withdraw again. So we are in the same vicious circle. The IRGC designation as a terrorist organization, is that a stumbling block, do you think, Kelly? I think they can reach a, a solution regarding this issue right now. Of course, the, uh, some parts of the administration, including the Pentagon, are uh, pushing not to uh, delist the uh, IRGC as a terrorist organization, but the Iranians want also uh, this issue to be solved. However, I think that this is related also to uh, how much Iran is willing to first comply, second, give concessions uh, also, uh, given that uh, now we have seen the administration giving concessions while the Iranians are only benefiting from that. They didn't offer anything uh, from their side. So it's pretty much related to what the Iranians are willing to do, uh, and it's up to them. Uh, I think that also the administration don't want to use all their cards before securing commitment from the Iranian side on uh, what they have agreed uh, so far on. So I think this is not a in my opinion, a very problematic issue because the main issues were not whether to list or delist the IRGC. Now, at the recent Doha forum, Saeed Kamal Karazi, the former Iranian foreign minister and an advisor to Iran's supreme leader, said, and I'm quoting, yes, it is imminent, but it depends on the political will of the United States. And then the State Department's special envoy for Iran negotiations, Robert Malley, he took the stage immediately afterwards and he said, we're pretty close to a deal, but we've been pretty close for some time. I think that tells you all you need to know about the difficulty of the issues that remain. Uh, that suggests a lot of wariness on both sides. So how big an issue is the trust factor in this? How much does each side trust or distrust 
the other. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 totally right, and uh, I think that uh, trust factor is indeed a, a determinant factor. But the issue is that right now, and after testing uh, the first version, let's say of the JCP OA OA, both sides know each other very well. So I wouldn't say that they would operate based on the trust factor. They want guarantees to make sure that. Uh, uh, each part is doing what he uh, has to do. So trust factor is always there, but I don't think that uh, any of the involved side is putting uh, all its eggs in this the trust factor basket. So I think that they are aiming to maximize the benefits of what they can get from the, from the deal. And uh, I think also both sides are aware that they cannot... Uh, rely too much on the trust factor because, for example, from the Iranian side, they already experienced a situation where the U.S. president withdraw from the uh, agreement. And also from the American side, they had a, a long experience with the uh, Iranians not willing to uh, live for their commitments and using uh, deceptions and twisted uh, uh, ways to try to progress with their uh, nuclear program without being caught. So both sides are aware of the situation, I would say, and uh, they will try to maximize the benefits while at the same time taking into consideration that no one can guarantee the other 100%. Now, critics say... And they've been saying it for a long time that the Iranians are simply playing for time. And the intention is now and has always been to secure a nuclear weapons capability. Do you think that's the case? Well, uh, there, ha- there have been debate on this point. But uh, from my uh, humble point of view, I, I agree with this uh, narrative because this has been the case for the Iranians for uh, years. Uh, they have been progressing in their nuclear program and uh, they have been uh, depending on uh, deception. Uh, they have been trying to hide their critical activities, including the ones that are prohibited by uh, international laws and the UN uh, Security Council sanctions at the time also to try to uh, override and overcome these sanctions. So, and But at the end of the day, they, they caught several, they have been caught several times uh, making these violations. And uh, right now, I think that, as I said before, they are not pressured the way they were uh, under Trump uh, administration. So they think that they are okay with the current situation being negotiating from uh, on the one hand and uh, uh, progressing in the nuclear program on the other hand. Now, uh, given this, I think that there is an intention to get a nuclear uh, weapon, in my opinion, despite the, the fact that this point is being, you know, uh, kind of uh, raising controversy because some people are saying no, some people are saying yes, but I think this is the ultimate call of the Iranians at the end of the day. And also the JC, uh, J, JCPOA in its first version, in my opinion, does not prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear bomb at the end of the day. I mean, this is the point where we have a lot of disagreements on why why Obama administration uh, approved this kind of deal. Of course, uh, uh, the administration is arguing otherwise, but those who oppose the deal are saying it is not preventing Iran uh, from acquiring a nuclear bomb if the Iranian uh, regime decides at a certain point in a certain time in the future to acquire a nuclear bomb. 
Yeah, uh, and I wonder too, that being so, how nervous the Gulf states are about the possibility that Iran is very close to having enough enriched uranium to produce a nuclear bomb. I mean, some estimates say they're just a few weeks away from that stage, and then they need only two years to develop nuclear weapons. I mean, that's a frightening scenario. Yes, indeed. And the Gulf states, as you said, they are very nervous. They uh, know that this is a possibility, and uh, their nervousness increased in the last few years, given that the U.S. security guarantees are not so firm the way that they perceived it to be. Uh, these security guarantees have been tested several times uh, vis-a-vis Iran, and uh, they, they, they think that the U.S. at the end of the day will uh, seek to secure its own interest, not the interest of the Gulf states. And given there is no binding, I mean legally binding, agreement between the U.S. and the Gulf states that in case of an emergency or in a case of uh, danger, the U.S. is obliged to protect these states, then they, they are aware that they are in a, a vulnerable situation if the Iranians uh, reach a nuclear bomb at the end of the day. So the issue is that that's why when uh, Obama administration reached this nuclear deal with the Iran, the Gulf states, as I recall at, at that time, they suggested that the U.S. should sign a binding security guarantee with them, but the U.S. administration refused at, the, uh, at that time, and it offered them a lot of arms deals. But this doesn't solve the situation, obviously, and it will not uh, help protect them uh, against a uh, the scenario of a nuclear Iran in the future. Yes, and they've got cause to be concerned because if we look back under President Trump, there was an attack on the Aramco facilities uh, no response from the Americans, really. And then, of course, there was that the recent attack on Abu Dhabi. Again, the Emiratis said, you know, where were the Americans in supporting us? So there is a real genuine anxiety that what was a very firm security blanket seems to have slipped away. But can I ask you, Ali, about President Erdogan? He attempted to play a negotiator role in the Ukraine-Russia war. Do you see a role for Turkey in getting the JCPOA deal over the finish line? Well, uh, Turkey have been active in this file, uh, I mean, the nuclear negotiations, uh, 10 years ago or more, more than 10 years ago. In 2010, as I recall, Turkey had made uh, some uh, good efforts in this issue and tried to reach a a deal and they uh, ultimately with the help of Brazil and Iran agreed on a, a kind of a deal regarding the swap of Iran's uh, enriched, enriched uranium but uh, uh, of course the US killed the deal uh, at the time. I don't think there will be a crucial role for Turkey in this file anymore despite that we have seen Turkey paying uh, uh, good aviation efforts lately including the uh, deal that have been done two days ago between uh, Russia and the U.S. and Turkey played a crucial role and Turkish intelligence played uh, a critical role in that uh, deal. Uh, there is theoretically... Oh, what, what, what deal was that, uh, Ali? So they swat uh, one Russian uh, member uh, with, with one U.S. major. Uh, so... Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a swap of, of prisoners of war that yes. Turkey was involved in. Yes, yes. So I, I think that the Turkey, of course, uh, is, is paying uh, good efforts lately in mediation efforts, uh, whether with, with, between uh, Russia and Ukraine and uh, Russia and the US. But at the end of the day, 
in the nuclear uh, negotiations in particular, I, I don't see a critical role for Turkey. Turkey's also relations with, with Iran uh, lately is not that good, even tensions are rising uh, against the background of Iran's role in Syria and Iraq. And uh, uh, Turkey has its own complications when it comes to relations with the US. So I think that my own estimation that there will not be a, a critical role for Turkey in that file. Uh, additionally, uh, the U.S. is, when there is a, a, an obstacle, the U.S. is resorting uh, recently to uh, efforts by countries like Qatar and Oman. So I'm not seeing Turkey in the picture here. Well, all right, you, you've mentioned Qatar, you're, you're in Doha. What is the importance of a new deal for Doha and what sort of a role could the Qataris play then in, in, in trying to get uh, the JCPOA the JCPOA sorted out? Well, um, Qatar's stance on this issue have been uh, very much uh, clear, and uh, the Qataris support uh, reactivating of the deal, and uh, they want uh, Iran to be committed. They want the US to be committed. They think that. Uh, a deal is uh, better than no deal, where there is no constraints on the Iranian nuclear program. And uh, they have been vocal and uh, very clear regarding this point. They think that this will also help stabilize the region and um, achieve uh, stability and security, which is in their own interest also. So um, what role can they play or do, what's their role? They, they have been playing a role indeed, especially in the last two months. Uh, they have been sending messages. They have been facilitating the uh, negotiations, whether between uh, the US and Iran on the one hand or uh, between the US and Russia on the other hand. Because as I said before, the Russians at a certain point uh, uh, amid uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, they uh, tried to hinder the uh, progress in the nuclear negotiations and uh, the Qataris uh, uh, carried out some messages to to the Russian government on this issue. So they have been active, they have been uh, playing a vital role. I think that also the US is pretty much trusting them and they're uh, trusting their, their capacity when it comes to uh, mediation efforts and this is a good thing in my own opinion. But at the end of the day we have to also uh, highlight that the Gulf states never had a unified policy when it comes to Iran. So uh, this is a little bit problematic when it comes to nuclear negotiations. Second, they want to be involved in those negotiations and th this didn't happen uh, neither uh, in the previous administration nor in during the time of this administration. And uh, they want their views to be taken into consideration and to what extent this is happening right now, I'm not sure because the uh, Biden administration is not clear on uh, what they have achieved till now or or how they incorporated the respective of some regional countries which opposed the reactivation of the nuclear deal in the negotiations uh, with Iran. So uh, this is the point. Uh, you mentioned Oman. Oman was, of course, was very important in the first JCPOA Deal exactly. getting it across the line. What sort of a role is Oman playing now? Well, currently, I, I don't see a, a role for Oman. Uh, as you said, uh, they were very active during the uh, first version of the nuclear deal. They hosted uh, uh, some also uh, meetings between Obama's team and uh, 
Iran, and they were involved in carrying up messages, facilitating the uh, negotiations. They uh, and they carried all these, of course, uh, activities secretly without even uh, informing other Gulf states or any other countries. So they they were very much trustable from both sides, Iran and the U.S. Uh, but I guess because of the uh, the change that happened lately in the on the top level and maybe also because of other considerations the administrations uh, Biden administration shifted to Qatar and now uh, Qatar is is uh, playing a role that traditionally Oman was playing it so but uh, I don't think they they dropped the Omani option it's always there uh, maybe because of the uh, internal and regional circumstances, they preferred Qatar to play a more active role in this sense. You're referring there, Ali, to the death of Sultan Qaboos and uh, Sultan Haitham taking over in Oman. Yes, yes. Now, the Israelis, who of course have nuclear weapons, um, thanks to the Abraham Accords, they're much closer to several of the Gulf states. They often threaten a preemptive strike on Iran, and over the years they've carried out attacks on Iran's nuclear facilities, assassinated scientists. Is there a danger that without a deal, the Israelis could drag the Gulf into some sort of military adventure against Iran? Well, uh, regarding this point, let me say that uh, first, the Israelis and the Iranians uh, know each other when it comes to nuclear activities. Uh, They both cooperated on military and intelligence level in the 80s against the nuclear program of Iraq. And because of the Iranians' effort, the Israelis were able to destroy Iraq's nuclear uh, program in 1981. So uh, I guess former uh, British Foreign Minister Jack Straw uh, talked about this issue in details in his uh, fascinating book, The English Job. So uh, I think that the Iranians uh, learned uh, the lesson uh, from that experience. So they built their uh, program uh, deep inside Iran, uh, far away from Israel's uh, reach. And they also uh, diversified the facilities in a way that it will be very hard to kill their program using a military strike. Given uh, this, uh, the Israelis also aware of this matter. However, as you said, the Israelis have been also active in uh, sabotaging the Iranian nuclear program, uh, whether through assassinations, whether through implanting uh, bombs in some facilities, whether by trying to implant or use cyber war. So they are aware that they can delay, they can sabotage the Iranian nuclear program, but it is very hard to kill it using a military strike. uh, having said this, of course, a military uh, option is all uh, is always there. The Israelis know that if the Iranians uh, proceed towards a nuclear bomb, there will be no other option but to bomb their uh, facilities. But in this case, the Israelis will not only drag some countries in the region, they will be dragging also uh, the great powers, whether the US or the Russia or however, to this uh, matter. And uh, it will not be... Uh, regional problem at uh, at the time. Of course, the first countries to be affected in this scenario are the vulnerable Gulf countries. Uh, this can happen. We cannot rule out this scenario uh, at all. But having said this, I think that um, the Israelis are, are, are somehow uh, will not rush into such option. They will uh, leave it to, to the end. There will be their last option. 
And even if they didn't resort to this option, at the end of the day, the Israelis, as you have mentioned, they have uh, a nuclear weapon. They can, you know, deter Iran because both will be nuclear uh, powers. However, uh, again, the others will be the losers. I mean, the Gulf countries, which they don't have a nuclear uh, bomb at the time, so they will be vulnerable against the Iranians' malicious activities. Well, yeah, as we've said, the Israelis have nuclear weapons, but the Saudis have said that if Iran proceeds to get the bomb, they will too. So are we looking at a, a nuclear arms race in the region if, as you said, the Iranians are basically playing for time and will in the end get uh, nuclear capability? Are we, are we looking at uh, uh, this, this arms race happening in the Gulf? Well, if the Iranians proceed uh, uh, and then they acquired a nuclear bomb at the end of the day, I think that, yes, the, the scenario where nuclear arm race uh, occurs in the region is very high. But again, also, this will not, uh, will not be automatically uh, triggered in order for these countries, whether, whether Saudi Arabia, whether Egypt, whether Turkey, uh, to acquire a nuclear bomb needs time and money and expertise. And uh, uh, right now, the Saudis are far away from acquiring a nuclear bomb by their own capabilities. So they will either buy a nuclear bomb if there is such an option, or they will uh, acquire a nuclear umbrella by another uh, security guarantor, whether it is US or Pakistan or any other nuclear power, or they will try by, by their own capacity, which, uh, like I said, will take uh, much more time and money and expertise to build on. So, uh, but yes, uh, answering your question, definitely uh, Iran acquiring a nuclear bomb will trigger an, an, a nuclear arms race in the uh, region. And this is very frightening and scary scenario, of course, especially for small states and vulnerable states in the region. It, it, it is indeed. Uh, Ali, thank you. Thank you very much. Sure, thank you very much for hosting me, dear Bell, and looking forward to uh, future uh, podcast sessions also with you. As am I. All the best, thanks. Thank you, thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. Ali Bakir, a research assistant professor at the Ibn Khaldun Center for Humanities and Social Sciences at Qatar University in Doha. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched the podcast, and our audience has grown tenfold to more than 5,000 listeners a month. So, a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to our podcast, the Herb Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Ali. If you'd like a free trial of the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.